Hi, I'm Justin Rosso, and welcome to this episode of the Next Step Podcast, where we help you take a next step. And this Facebook Live reading of the book, Delight, Discipleship as the Adventure of Loving and Being Loved. This is chapter five, week four of the Delight book reading. We've already talked about joyful delight and thoughtful delight, about playful delight and a delicious delight. And tonight we get to talk about desirable delight, one of my favorites. It's been another nice fall day here. Uh, we don't get too many times we get to do three of them in a row. So three of them in a row, nice fall days up here in Michigan, cool but sunny. Uh, the leaves have started to turn. Uh, my mother-in-law was down from Frankenmuth this afternoon and she happened to stop by the store and brought home steaks. So I grilled out for dinner. I think the, all the talk of delicious delight last night was getting to her. So we had steaks and roasted potatoes and green beans with butter. And it was a Definitely a delicious delight kind of night. Uh, For us, we've got to say goodbye to the boat here at the lake tomorrow. Take the boat off tomorrow morning and it'll go into storage for the year. And then the dock will come out in a rather chilly experience sometime this weekend, I hope. That's another marker that fall is here and winter's on its way. So uh, wherever you are tonight, whatever you're doing, whatever you're getting ready for this busy weekend... I'm so glad you took time tonight with me to to just read a little bit more of delight, to dig into God's word, to to feel his presence and allow his spirit to shape us to be a little bit more like him today. So let's go ahead and jump right in with chapter five of delight. A desirable delight. I'm started on page 39. Desirable delight, things that make you go, yes, please. In the last chapter, we met a pleasurable, desirable delight, kephets, C-H-E, pronounced K, that Isaiah contrasted with the delicious delight of knowing and following God. What was wrong with the kephets in Isaiah 58 was the focus of the pleasure or desire, not the simple act of desiring something pleasurable. In fact, Kephets is one of the delight words in the Bible, the Bible uses to describe the mutual delight we share in our relationship with God. God desires you because you bring God pleasure. And God invites you to find that same desirable delight in who God is for you. I suspect using words like pleasure and desire to talk about our relationship with God might seem a bit weird to you. It seems a bit weird to me, too. But I think it seems weird to us, at least in part, because of the direction our language has taken. Words like pleasure and desire have started to lose a neutral meaning. As if the words pleasure and desire actually mean guilty pleasure or sinful desire all by themselves. This narrowing of a general meaning happens in the natural development of a language over time, and it has happened in the domain of delight before. The fancy word concupiscence, for example, literally refers to any strong desire or longing in the original Latin, whether that desire is for something good, bad, or indifferent. But as far back as I can find, concupiscence as a Latin theological term means only evil, sinful, fallen, fleshly desire, the functional equivalent of original sin. Closer to home, 
We regularly use words like lust and covet almost exclusively to mean something sinful and negative. I mean, I guess I could... I guess someone could still have a lust for life, and I wouldn't think they were evil. And I can covet your prayers without being deviant, but really those are the only two positive examples I can think of. If anything involves lust or coveting or even pleasure or desire, we naturally know it's probably sexual and certainly nothing holy or good. To add marketing insult to semantic injury you can find the reverse is also true. All kinds of products are advertised in terms that should be sinful but are used in ads provocatively to mean pleasurable. From fragrances with names like obsession or lush lust to images of sexy models sensually eating hamburgers, to Las Vegas travel packages being promoted as visiting Sin City, mass marketing tells us that sinful means desire and guilty means pleasure. But biblically speaking, sin is very rarely as pleasurable as marketing makes out. What's more, pleasure and desire are not necessarily sinful. God made human beings to be body and soul together. And although your body and soul are both fallen, your body and soul were both created to be good. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, it was even very good. God intended it that way. Your desires and your pleasures aren't inherently evil. Your desires and pleasures are just fallen because you are a sinful human being, just like me. Your desires and pleasures aren't evil because they are fleshly desires, as opposed to desires of your soul. They are evil because your flesh and soul are corrupted by sin. Before sin entered the world, there was no such thing as a guilty pleasure or a sinful desire. In the garden, there was only good pleasure and holy desire. In fact, in the garden, even coveting wasn't the sinful thing we know today. God intentionally made all the trees of the garden to bear fruit that was worthy of being coveted. Fruit that was pleasurable and delightful and inspired strong desire. The same Hebrew word in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet, is used in Genesis to describe the trees of the trees God placed in the garden. Prefall covet was another desirable delight vocabulary word. In our language and experience there is no such thing as coveting without sin because we only know coveting as desiring something that is not good or holy for us to desire. That's why a statistically large percentage of the 10 commandments are devoted to different kinds of sinful coveting. Take a closer look at what's sinful about coveting. The sin is not the strong, pleasurable desire by itself. Strong desire is sinful when the object of that desire is not intended by God for you. Adam and Eve's sin was not finding the tree of knowledge of good and evil delightful. God made it that way just as God made all the other delightful and desirable and pleasurable trees. 
Genesis 3.6 says Eve found the tree of that one uh, Genesis 3.6 says Eve found the fruit of that one tree to be pleasurably desirable. But Genesis 2.9 uses the very same delight vocabulary word for how God made all the trees in the garden. Adam and Eve's sin was placing their desire and delight on something God had set a limit around a command God intended as a blessing. Go ahead, desire and long for the delight of your spouse. Just keep your heart and hands off of other people. And know that when God commands you not to covet or lust after or desire or find pleasurable delight in the person whose delight is intended to be found in someone else, God designs that limit to be a blessing to everyone involved. The sin is not in the act of desire. The sin is in a misplaced object of the desire, a desire that then becomes self-centered and self-serving. Desire and pleasure do not automatically become sinful when they're physical. Desire and pleasure, both physical and spiritual, become sinful when they are fallen. You and I know only sinful pleasure and desire not because we are physical human beings, but because we are part of fallen humanity. The new creation knows both pleasure and desire without the shackles of sin. And even now, ahead of time, we are invited to imagine and experience what it means to know a God who finds pleasurable delight in us and for us to return the sentiment. I know, it just seems weird to talk about God that way. When we talk about desire or pleasure, we can easily get the wrong impression. But the scriptures are pretty clear that there is a right sort of desire and a right sort of pleasure. The Bible can talk about God taking pleasure in and desiring us. Scripture can even get a little bit racy at times. We're talking Song of Solomon stuff here. Places in Scripture where Yahweh is the bridegroom and Israel the bride or Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. We'll talk more details in a later chapter. God says some things about you that will heat up a room as you read your Bible. This desirable delight works in both directions, from God toward us and from us back towards God. Some passages in Paul, Romans 7, for example, talk about the new person, the, the new resurrection humanity that is already being formed in us by faith. And according to that new person, Paul looks at God's word and God's will and God's ways and gets kind of hot and bothered. Paul says some things about our relationship with God that are PG-13 at least. But Paul's desire and pleasure are the exact opposite of the self-centered, sinful desires of lust and coveting. Paul is expressing a God-centered desire the way God intended. And it reflects God's Paul-centered desire 
and God's joy. This sanctified desire is an expression of mutual delight, of loving and being loved. Of course, we aren't supposed to push that image too far. Of course, we shouldn't impose our own sinful passions and desires and pleasures onto what God feels about us or what we are invited to feel about God. But if we're going to talk about discipleship as delight, you need to know that even the most intimate, personal, loving, and intense experience you can know as a human being is taken up and baptized and used by God to talk about the intimate, personal, loving, and intense relationship God has with you in Jesus. Again in Isaiah, after words of judgment and desolation come words of promise and hope for the future. Listen to how relational, how intimate this description is. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land no more shall be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. That's Isaiah 62, verse 4 in the ESV. Both of those delight words are kephets, desirable delight in the Hebrew. The promised restoration of the relationship between God and God's people is accompanied with the promise of love and delight, a desirable, almost sensual delight, a pleasurable delight known specifically in the intimacy of marriage. The intimacy, the disclosure, the knowing and being known entailed in such an image is almost breathtaking. God intends to know you and be known by you in intimate ways that bring delight. God's people respond with a similar desirable delight. They respond to God's invitation with a yes, please. Uh, the word please is related to pleasure, but I can't discern any hint of a negative connotation. So if it helps you feel better about this chapter, just translate pleasure and desire into a resounding yes, please. The desirable delight isn't a sinful, this desirable delight isn't a sinful pleasure, it's a good pleasure. In fact, that's one way to translate the Hebrew word kephetz, good pleasure. You sometimes hear it put that way. God's will is called God's good pleasure. God's will is the thing God wants done, but God wants it done because it brings such delight. When the Hebrew of the Old Testament got translated into Greek, the language of the New Testament, the Hebrew word for desirable delight, kephetz, came across as the Greek word for will, or good pleasure. Thelema. Thelema, good pleasure, will, or delight. Desirable delight means that God's will and God's pleasure are intimately linked for God as well as for us. Let's look at two specific verses from two different psalms and set the original Hebrew 
and the Greek translation of the delight vocabulary words together. First, from Psalm 1, verse 2. Blessed is the person whose delight, kephets in the Hebrew, thelema in the Greek, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. The second is Psalm 119, verse 35. Direct me in the path of your commandments, for there I find delight. Kephets in the Hebrew translated to thelema in the Greek. If it seems a little odd to be saying yes, please, to God's law and to the path of his commands, consider two things. First, words like law and command are something like desire or pleasure in that they only have a negative connotation after the fall. Before the fall and after the resurrection, we respond to God's law with delight. Only sin makes God's commands and God's law a burden. Only sin allows the law to awaken in us sinners a desire for something that is not given to us to desire. In fact, already now, according to the new person being shaped in us by the Spirit, we begin to find a desirable, pleasurable delight in God's law. That's Romans 7 again. God's good pleasure or God's will expressed in God's law becomes our good pleasure too. Even though sin still clings to us, the renewed part of who we are, the new person, says, Yes, please, to the will, ways, and law of God, given to us by God as a blessing and as a delight. Of course, as long as sin endures, which won't be always, our present response will constantly be imperfect. Even as we affirm and delight in God's law, we will always also turn away from God's commands in disgust and run from God's law in fear. But it wasn't supposed to be that way. And it isn't always going to be that way. And even now, it doesn't have to always only be that way. Sometimes, Along with the sinful inclination to run and hide from God's law, we also have an experience of delight. A new person, new creation delight in God's law and God's ways and God's commands. According to the new person I already am and am still becoming and won't be in full until the life of the world to come, I take delight in knowing God's heart and receiving the commands that God gives in order to bless. God's will is synonymous with God's good pleasure. God's law and God's commands are delightful of and by themselves. Only my sin makes them seem otherwise to me. The second thing to remember is that sometimes in the Bible, and Psalm 1.9 and 1.19 are good examples. Sometimes words like law or the path of God's commands are intended to be a lot broader and more comprehensive than we typically think. I usually oppose law with gospel. But in the broadest sense, the word law can mean everything that God has revealed about God's own nature and action in the story of Scripture. That's pretty broad. Let me, let me say that again. In the broadest sense, the word law can mean 
everything that God has revealed about God's own nature and action in the story of Scripture. That certainly entails commandments and restrictions, as well as wrath against sin and punishments and consequences. But the everything God has revealed about God's own nature and action in the story also includes God's heart of grace and forgiveness, God's care for the outsider and orphan, God's desire to dwell with people, God's action on our behalf, God's promise of rescue, deliverance, renewal, and restoration. The path of God's commands includes behavior, doing what we should as well as not doing what we shouldn't, and faith trusting God to come through on the promise God has made. In its broadest sense, the term law can include both law and gospel, commands and promises, behavior and faith, wrath and grace. So in the context of Psalm 1 and and Psalm 119, I think we're supposed to be imagining the broadest and most complete sense of God's law and of God's commands. I take, I delight in the whole story of God. Uh, say it again. I delight in the whole story God is telling and how that story catches me up in the grand narrative of God's grace. But even when we're able to catch a glimpse of that grace, one more time. But even when we're able to catch a glimpse of that grace-filled story, even when we can see how God's commands and promises work together for our joy, even then we have to admit that according to our sinful nature, both God's commands and God's promises are abhorrent to us as sinners. At the same time, According to the new life that is ours in Jesus already now ahead of time, God's commands and God's promises, both law and gospel, the way the Spirit tells the story and the role we are invited to play in it, God's commands and God's promises become a desirable delight that makes our hearts beat a little quicker, gets us excited and and interested and engaged, and makes us go, yes, please, give me more of that. I suppose that the di- I suppose that dynamic of God's good intention and our mixed response is true of every variety of delight we've looked at in this section. Jesus intends for us to experience mutual delight with him in joyful, thoughtful, playful, delicious and desirable ways. And the sin that still clings to each of us taints our present experience of each and every one of those expressions of delight. That mixed response is not what God intended. And it's not always going to be that way. While we wait for that final restoration, God invites us to experience a foretaste of the delight to come. Even now, ahead of time, Jesus invites you to know joyful delight, thoughtful delight, playful delight, delicious delight, and even desirable delight in your relationship with him.
that delight comes naturally to our new nature. But that old sinful nature still distorts every experience of delight in our present fallen reality. As you try to live out this invitation to experience delight in your relationship with Jesus, you should expect your own heart and mind to rebel against that freedom and that intimacy and that delight. As soon as savoring God's word becomes a joy, expect daily Bible study to suddenly become a chore. As soon as accepting the invitation to be honest and frequent in prayer makes a real difference in your relationship with God, expect a regular routine of prayer to feel empty and hollow. Having run without thought or effort toward the loving arms of your smiling Father, expect the journey to suddenly feel like an uphill climb with a heavy pack. Your sinful heart will play tricks on you. Your sinful heart hates forgiveness and intimacy and restoration. Your sinful heart hears both God's commands and God's promises and wants you to believe that they are heavy weights you can't possibly carry. Your own sinful heart is much more comfortable with burden than delight because burden is a sinful heart's native language, home country, and natural state. But don't despair. It won't always be like this, and it doesn't have to be only like this, even now. Already now, by the power of the Spirit and in the resurrection life you share with Jesus, even ahead of the resurrection, God wants you to know not burden, but delight. Following Jesus isn't supposed to weigh you down. It's supposed to make you dance. Following Jesus isn't supposed to limit your fun. It's supposed to open you up to freedom you've never known before. Following Jesus isn't a burden to carry, even when you carry your cross. To follow Jesus is certainly to know suffering and trouble and dying to self and struggling with doubt. But fundamentally, fundamentally, following Jesus is about delight. First and foremost, discipleship is about Jesus' delight in you. You make Jesus laugh. You make him sing. You make him go woohoo and wow and wee and yum and yes, please. And then as a sort of rebound in a response of delight that only increases his delight, you get to turn around and go woohoo and wow and wee and yum and yes, please to Jesus. Two, Jesus delights in you, and Jesus loves it when you feel the same about him. That's what following Jesus is all about. Oh, you guys are killing me. <laughs> 
obviously I'm, I meant it or I wouldn't have written it like that, but saying it to you, even when I'm talking to you on Facebook, I, I know some of you who are listening and I know my own heart. Uh, and uh, I've, I've always preached to myself first and, and then to my hearers. So it's good for me to read this again with you. Uh, you'll find me getting emotional all the time on here. Sorry, hope it's not too much of a distraction. There is one final little section before we're done with chapter 5. It, it kind of closes this first section on the architecture of delight. Uh, but before I read that, in conclusion, I just want to remind you that uh, we're a chapter ahead because chapters 2 and 3 were show, so short. So I'm planning on coming on uh, on the air tomorrow night at 8 p.m., if you have a question about delight or about any of the vocabulary words we've covered so far, if you've got the book and you'd like to ask a question, uh, if you'd like to respond or put a recipe up, if you've got something you'd like me to talk about, sometime between now and about 5 o'clock tomorrow evening, I'd love to get some responses from you so I've got a launching pad. And if I don't hear from you, that's okay. Uh, no pressure, no burden, just invitation and delight. I've got a couple other things I might be able to read from too. So thanks. This is the beginning to close the first section here. There are some some study group questions, and uh, they're on page begin on page fifty in the book. And whether you've got a small group or not, I'd, I'd encourage you to check those out as well. Uh, let me go ahead and finish up with this this section of desirable delight before we say good night. This first section took a cursory look at a biblical word cloud for the concept of delight. The delight God intends and expresses is a whole person kind of delight. Loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength involves your emotions, your thoughts, your sense of play, your physical senses, and your desires. And God loves you in a way and God loves you in that same vast and complex whole person kind of way. We could have done a lot less or a lot more with the biblical vocabulary words, but we're looking at the conceptual architecture of delight in the scriptures. Uh, let me see if this is a complete sentence or not. We could have done a lot less or a lot more with the biblical vocabulary words, but looking at the conceptual architecture of delight in the scriptures gives us tools to explore this mutual delight more in depth. In the rest of this book, we'll take a closer look at loving and being loved. In section two, we'll explore some of the ways God expresses divine delight in us. And then in section three, we'll look at how we're invited to experience and express our delight in God. From this point on, you will find discussion questions at the end of each chapter. Find one or two people to go through this book with you, or introduce this book to a group that already meets regularly. You will get more out of this journey if you have fellow travelers along the way. Even if you don't process this book specifically in a group, Ask some of the discussion questions to people you run into during the course of your week. Friends, family, co-workers, or acquaintances. Getting to know the people around you brings its own type of delight. That conversation will also help you process God's word in your life, even when the talk is not overtly religious. Trust that Jesus is up to something in your life. You will hear echoes of Jesus' activity on the lips of people Jesus places around you.
we follow Jesus better when we follow him together. If you've been around the Next Step community at all, you've heard me say that more than once. We follow Jesus better when we follow him together. That's why I'm so glad to have you with me on this Facebook Live journey as we read the book together. Uh, It just means something more to have you here listening and adding your comments and know you're reading along at home. So thanks. Thanks for being with with us tonight. Uh, If you don't have a book, go ahead and order one or maybe get one for a friend or family member. Uh, Give it to a couple people at church or think of it for your Christmas list this year. Uh, I I love reading this book with you and maybe there's somebody that you know that could use that promise that even though we're stinking sinners, God delights in us and forgives us and renews us and already now ahead of time, we begin to get to experience that delight in God as well. Hey, thanks. Thanks for tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. So long. Till next time at Next Step Press. Uh, See you next time at Next Step Press.